brothers, thank you so much for welcoming, welcoming me to your retreat. What a pleasure and an honor. I think some of you know that John Benich and I had the privilege of serving together over in Lynchburg for three years, and I have known Bill Landis left the room. I have known him for almost 30 years. I was counting it up. Does that sound right? 79 to 2009? 30 years. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to spend time this weekend in the book of Proverbs. It is immensely helpful. The verse that will launch us this evening is on your handout, and that's Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Abraham Lincoln said this, I am nothing Truth is everything. What would you be like if you believed that? You really believed that all that mattered was truth, God's glory. Would you be pushy and arrogant or humble and gentle? Would you be prickly? unapproachable, egotistical, self-aggrandizing, vying and posturing around others for attention, for approval, for control? Or would you be content to take a second seat to truth if it meant a greater expression of God's glory? Now, why these irritating if not important questions. These kinds of questions expose to us, I think, something that is largely hidden from our hearts, and that is how profoundly self-centered we are. We are usually the last person to know how self-centered we are. And when God's glory matters most, you don't matter as much. When you matter more than truth, than God's glory, Houston, we have a problem. God says unequivocally, he hates pride. And for your good, for my edification, he says, warns, a man's pride will bring him low. I just wonder if it isn't ultimately our pride that is eating up our joy, our happiness, our peace, our faith, our relationships. Proverbs 11:2. when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. I think there's ultimately only two kinds of people in the world. Those that are proud and know it, and those that aren't aware of their pride. Why is that funny? There's two kinds of people on this side. Two kinds of people on this side. People that are proud and arrogant, and it's like in your face, that's exactly the way I am, tough, buddy. Then there's people who are proud, they loathe it, they want to fight it, and they are actually the healthiest people on earth. Many of us fall into this category. Pride 
runs deep through the corners of our heart and we're simply not aware of it to the degree God would have us. I think probably we'll never be shown it this side of glory because we would become undone. And thankfully there's a day when we will be through with pride forever. This side of glory, brothers, we need to learn how to fight this monster. So let me get started with a couple of tests that try to flesh out to see if you detect pride working in your heart. A series of tests, for example, regarding your relationship with others. How do you respond when somebody tells you you're wrong? With delight? With thankfulness? Because truth is all that matters? Or you are innately defensive? Now, if you're married, end of discussion. What do you think of a person who disrespects you? Do you think you're better, nicer, smarter than people? Have you ever experienced driving up next to somebody in a beaten down old car with blue smoke coming out the back and they look run down and you feel like you're a better person than they are? Do you ever experience that? I do. Pride. What do you like when somebody tells you what to do? or somebody criticizes you, is the first thought, it's really not as bad as you think it is. What would lead us to that sort of defense? It's not as bad as you think. Do you say or do things in order to be recognized, in order to be esteemed, in order to be valued? Do you make excuses when you miss an easy putt? Really? Guys on a golf course? They're on the 16th hole. They all know the speed of the greens by now. They miss an easy putt and they go, oh, these greens suck. <laughs> no, you're proud. <laughs> Questions about yourself. What do you like when you don't get your own way? Married? If you're not sure, get married and, and you'll find out. Um, your character is actually revealed in what you repent of. The glory of a man is ultimately revealed in what he repents of. What do you repent of? How much regularity is there in your personal devotion repenting of pride, self-centeredness, needing attention, needing to be right, needing to be in control? Do you repent of pride on a regular basis? Are you actively seeking to change a sin pattern, a flaw in your character. Are you working on it? Does somebody else in your sphere of closeness know about that, holding you lovingly accountable? Do you know how your heart wears its pride? It's pride is a, is, is a monster with many different faces. Do you know how pride particularly affects you? My son Mike was a freshman at JMU in the fall of 2001. A traveling evangelist came to campus, and his style was to stand up and point out all the fornicators and the adulterers and what was bad about everybody else out there. So at one point in the break, my son was, his theological paradigm was being stretched. So he said, what about you and your sin? The guy said, I haven't sinned since the day I've been saved. 
if that wasn't so tragic, it would be comical. I ha- and I have to believe he believed that. I haven't sinned since the day I was saved. Just then. How about questions regarding your relationship with God? Do you resist doing what you know God wants you to do? What would be the explanation for that? Only one word, ultimately. Pride. When you're successful, how quick are you to thank God and give Him the glory? Do you praise God for the gifts He's given to other people that are greater than you? Am I jealous? Or can I really delight that there are people better than me at what I do? Why not? Pride. Do you think you're a humble person? (laughs) If you think you're humble, that's because you're proud. Only the humble know they're proud. Are you mad at God because you believe he owes you something you deserve and he hasn't given you? What would be the source of that anger? Pride. Proverbs tells us that we have a serious, deadly birth defect, a spiritual birth defect. It's called pride. It is a major stumbling block along the path of life. That's the main image we get for living in the book of Proverbs, the path of life. There are many stumbling blocks on and off. Oftentimes good things are stumbling blocks. Time, sex, money, words, relationships. Pride is not a good thing. It's a major stumbling block. And it's, it's like a landmine ready to go off. And if you find that where you are relationally is there's often landmines blowing up around you, it might be due to your unchecked pride. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes be- before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So here's the picture. Here's the path. Here's destruction. Here's stumbling. You're supposed to stop and observe, oh, What went before stumbling and destruction? What went before it? Pride and a haughty spirit. Conclusion, those are things I need to work against. Okay, I know this is a very cheerful talk. Let me give you a compressed compressed notion of what pride is. It strikes me. Pride by its nature affects our entire personality. It is tenacious and deceptive. It is the last thing to die in us. It is most contradictory to reality. It is likely the source from which all sins spring and is sin we're not so quickly ashamed of. Okay, let's try to define it. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity defines pride this way. He says, pride is always in relation to another person. Uh, Page 109 of Mere Christianity. Now, what I want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature, while other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. I don't know exactly what he means by that, but he goes on. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having it more than the next man. Once that element of competition is gone, pride is gone. I want to push that definition a little bit more. Because I don't see biblically pride as essentially between man and man, 
But pride is a disposition. It's really something you are. It's a way of thinking. It's an infection of your being, and therefore your thinking, and therefore your living. Pride is a heart motivation that wants to assert and promote and protect what? Self. And since the nature of reality is theocentric, it's all about God, because God is at the center of reality, I am only ultimately defined by God, and therefore pride is an abnormal response to the glory of God. It is, it is, a, it is an awkwardness, as it were, in my being vis-a-vis God. Let me see if I can illustrate it. What usually happens when you drop an ice cube in a pot of boiling water? What usually happens? Well, nothing usually happens. It always melts. It is the property of the heat to always melt the ice cube, right? That is without discussion. It always melts. Pride is an ice-cold human heart dropped in the presence of the warm fire of God's love. And it refuses to melt. I mean, everything in creation screams His glory. The psalmist says his loving kindness covers the earth. We all live in the presence of an unbelievably loving God. And our hearts refuse to melt in his presence. That to me seems to be the heart of pride. The wicked, Psalm 10, verse 4, and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. Proverbs 16.5 The proud in heart are an abomination to the Lord. Why? So contradictory to the way things are. We were made to be humbled in the presence of somebody greater than us, not to think we're greater than that person. God considers pride an abomination. We have some, a lot of different case studies in the Bible, uh, not surprisingly, of people whose pride got them in trouble. Ezekiel 28, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God. You make your heart like the heart of God. That's probably the worst thing that a human being could do. Is it not? To make your heart like something that it just isn't. Here's a case study from 2 Chronicles 26. When Uzziah became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. Notice what led to corrupt behavior. The heart, in response to a circumstance, when Uzziah became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to to burn incense uh, on the altar of incense, an act reserved only for priests. But here's a guy who's taking religious matters into his own hands. What's the progression? Okay, By the Lord's help, he became strong. Is that okay? Sure. God can elevate anyone he wants to any time that God desires. He became strong. That's the way it always is. We always owe our success to God. It's always that way. God does that. And then... He thinks he's something, i.e. his heart became proud, and so he acts above the law according to his own rules. And so what I want you to see here is that pride traffics in this dynamic. Right facts, wrong conclusions. What's the right facts? God made me strong. 
what's the what's his conclusion? Therefore, I am something. What should the right what what sh- what should the right conclusion be? God made me strong. Therefore, what's the conclusion? Well, I am humbly dependent and grateful for what God has done. You don't have to deny God made you strong, wealthy, smart, successful, gifted. It's that you have to acknowledge God has done that. So anytime you feel your heart making excuses to be above the law, it's probably fueled by this prideful dynamic. Right facts, wrong conclusion. Spurgeon said, Christian, when you have your best suit on, remember who paid for it. A very successful businessman in Texas named Howard E. Butt, he's founder of the H-E-B grocery chain, it did a mere $11 billion in 2003, said this in an article he wrote called The Art of Being a Big Shot. The Art of Being a Big Shot. It is my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I'm master of my own fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to have help from other people, and I can't ultimately rely on myself. I'm dependent on God for my next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I'm anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independently of God is self-delusion. And it's not just a matter of pride being a little unfortunate trait and humility being attractive little virtue. It is my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I am conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. When I'm pretending to be God and not man, my pride is the idolatrous worship of self. And that, he concludes, is the national religion of hell. Why do we have pride? Why do we have it? Because at the fall, our nature changed. There was not an ounce of human hubris in the garden before the fall. And Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and he essentially says, Guys, God says this, I'm saying this, you be the final arbiters of the way things are going to be. That's what human pride is. It is an insistence on an autonomous, independent evaluation of what will make me happy and the way I think the the world should be. God says, on the other hand, trust the experts. You need help with your car? Go to a mechanic. You need a haircut? Go to a barber. You need help with your finances? Go to an investor. You need help with your sickness? Go to the doctor. Trust the expert. We do that in all of life, don't we? God says, who's the expert about the nature of life? Did any of you create life, incidentally? Did any of you design the world? Somebody did. Our refusal to bow before the creator, the designer, the one who knows how it works is the ultimate arrogance and cosmic treason of our hearts. God's the expert, and we simply won't consult him. So, if you want to live for self-rule, for self-pleasure, for self-praise, well, that's motivated by pride. Let me put the question this way. Will you allow your personal glory to be defined by somebody more glorious than you? I mean, all of us have an idea of what makes us something, what makes us rich, as it were, as a person. Okay, we have an idea. Pride, to be combated, has to step back and say, you know, if there is a person in the universe more glorious than me, more infinite than me, 
more good than me, more righteous than me, more powerful than me, maybe I could give him the prerogative of defining what my glory would look like. How do we overcome it? Well, not till we die, ultimately. Let me suggest three things. We're really going to unpack a little bit more tomorrow morning when we look at humility as well. But let me give you three things to think about. Number one, begin to train your heart's eyes to see that the root causes of surface sins is almost always pride. In other words, as you think about what you struggle with, anger, lust, uh, self-control, impatience, fill in the blank. Begin to train your heart's eyes to see that the root of those technicolor sins is pride. That enables you to repent of the right thing, to repent at a deep level. For example, lying. What's motivating lying? I'll look bad if the truth is known about me. So what? So what if you look bad? Oh, it would be the end of me if I looked bad. Why? Because I must look good. Why? Because I must be accepted. Why? I must be esteemed. Why? 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 Because something greater than God's glory is defining me. Why aren't we delighted to be proved wrong and liars if the truth is... <laughs> you see? It's our ego. Uh, greed. I deserve this. Lust. I'm worthy of this pleasure. Gossip. I'm important because I know secrets. Anger, how dare you do that to me? Me, of all people. Judgmentalism, well, I'm always right. Laziness, I, ha I have a right to use my time as I want to. Cheating, I'm a special case. Lawlessness, I'm an exception to the rule. My wife, when we're drawing, driving, says, honey, you're an antinomian on the road. I've trained my kids to be antinomians. You obey the laws when they're convenient for you, you know? Roll through this stop sign and speed through this red light. And if you probe beneath your surface sins, you will find that there's a pronoun at the heart of them, and that is what? I. I, I, I. That's pride driving your thinking. Second thing to look at. Look below the surface niceness that we all seem to put on and we especially have to put on in the church and discover attitudes towards other people that pride tends to produce. You focus on their failures. You're critical. You're fault-finding. You look down on people with little compassion. You're quick to excuse yourself and just as quick to blame others. You protect your image and your reputation. You're defensive when you're criticized. It's hard to admit you're wrong. You're driven to be recognized. You're controlling, inflexible, unteachable. You know it all already. I, I think all of this ultimately falls under a verse in Proverbs 25, 27. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it a glory to search out one's own glory. In other words, honey, finding it, having a little bit, is wonderful. Too much makes you sick. Dwelling on your own glory too much is nauseating, not just to you, but to people around you, and certainly to God. What is the only way out? It's slavery to self-glory. And I don't know if you know it by now, but we're all battling slavery to self-glory. What's the only way out? The only way out. 
You have to fall in love with someone so great they will humble you and so humble they will melt your selflessness. You need to meet someone, a person. The only way out of our obsession with ourselves You need to meet someone who is humble without sinful pride. And who is so perfect in whose presence that because they're perfect and humble, you're not sparked to jealousy. See, if I'm in the presence of people that are better at me than, than what they do, I'm sparked to jealousy and envy. There's a man you have met that is so good, so loving, so humble, that you're not jealous of what he is. You're melted by him. That man is Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms, he is that humble man. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Actually, the only two adjectives, as it were, that I know Jesus explicitly uses to describe himself in the New Testament are those two. Gentle and humble. That's a good thing. Because there is the power for a crashing pride to bump up against the humility of Jesus and find rest. Can I put it this way? You'll never find true humility until you experience the humble, gentle heart of Jesus. There's a version of Christianity that goes around that says the way you find that is by being strong and a better Christian and more activity and more religion and doing better and better and better. And actually, just the opposite is true. You never find the humble heart of Jesus until you're broken, until you are ravaged by your that is the heart Jesus can't resist. He, he's not a personal trainer. He didn't come to make you stronger. Come on, buckle up, get stronger. I run alongside the strong. Jesus is the champion of the afflicted. He gives grace to the humble. That is good news. That is good news. Because those of you who have tried to do it harder, the, either one of two things happen. You get proud of how well you're doing. Or if you fail, you are thrown into despair and you give up. Some of you know people who have given up on Christianity because it doesn't work. I'll tell you what works. The humble heart of Jesus works. It melts our pride. Look at David's experience of this trauma. I'm going to call it the trauma of debilitating sin. Psalm 38. Listen to David. There's no soundness in my flesh because of thine indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester. Because of my folly, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. David's way of saying, self-glorying sin is wearying. It wears you out. Needing to prove yourself needing to look competent, needing to appear like something that you're not, wears you out. That's why Jesus promises rest. And that ultimate rest is found 
in the cross, at the cross, where Jesus says, the result of your pride, if you want to go to heaven, is my bloody cross. That's where it put me. But wonder of wonders, this same Jesus who says, you crucified me, you did this, in exchange for my beauty and righteousness, you spit the filth of your pride and rebellion upon me and killed me with it. Jesus says, I'll give you my love and return. What? That's what he'll exchange for our pride? Do you see the wonder of wonders? My pride wants me to look good. The gospel actually makes me good. It makes me good. I'm forgiven. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have in Jesus what I could never accomplish on my own. I'm cleansed. I'm accepted. I can now be free to struggle, not struggling to be free. That's why Paul says, if there's anything good about his life, it comes from Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So, finally, the gospel frees you to say, God is everything. I'm nothing. But the moment you say that, you become something. You become his son, a trophy of his grace, the apple of his eye, his precious treasure, an object that Jesus Christ will love perfectly as if there is no one else on earth to love. The moment you say, I need you, Jesus. You died for me. And so in the face of the cross, our pride begins to melt and you realize you can swallow your pride and not choke on it because your pride won't keep you from Jesus and it won't keep him from you. Wonder of wonders the proud, the forgiven, a Christian becomes the very dwelling of God. We wouldn't boast about that, but it's unspeakably glorious. I'm just going to close by uh, reading the words of a hymn by Twyla Paris. So if you just want to close your eyes, we'll make this a prayer. You are the love of all my life. You are the living spring You are the joy that finds my heart, giver of all good things. What am I without you? What am I without you? You are the day that rules the night. You are the hope in me. All that I have to stem from you, all I could ever be. What am I but a piece of earth, breathing holy breath? What am I but a wayward child? given life to certain death. You are the everlasting King. You are the risen Lord that you would come and fill my soul. This is beyond a dream. What am I without you? What am I without you?